Thanks, Hilly Bible. Glad y'all are here this morning. Uh, to, we are here to worship and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ together uh, because he alone is worthy of that, isn't he? So want to uh, introduce one of our new members uh, to you this morning. So John McCall, if you would come down and join me, please. John's been part of our church here for a little bit, but uh, he just became a member officially yesterday. So, so John, step up to the mic here. We got some questions for you as you uh, officially uh, are welcomed into the church. Uh, first, do you confess faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and do you desire above all else to live for Him? I do. Do you declare your intention to live in submission to the doctrine of the church as expressed in the, its confession of faith? Do you promise to support this congregation with your prayers, with your faithful attendance at its services, by your encouragement of our members, the willing use of your talents in its ministry, and the giving of your means as God as God prospers you? Then, as Jesus said to you, anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. As Paul wrote to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We want to pray for John and pray together. So if you join me. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for John. We thank you for the tremendous work of grace you have done in his life of bringing him to faith in you and bringing about transformation in his heart as he has responded through the Spirit, through your Word, and to the Spirit's prompting. Father, we thank you that he has uh, chosen to unite with us in the public witness of the church, that this is what a believer in Jesus Christ looks like, and uh, this is what one believes, and this is how one lives. And Father, we do pray that you would uh, strengthen John with power from your Holy Spirit, to uh, utilize his gifts and to do so in a way that honors you and brings unity and life to the church. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, brother. And if you would like to be a member or if you are interested in learning more about what it means to be a member of Chillicothe Bible Church, we're going to have our new members class starting up in just a couple of weeks. It'll meet during Sunday school here. Uh, you don't have to take the class to be a member, um, but if you've recently joined or even if you um, have been a member a long time and you'd like to come and learn a little bit more in depth about the church and what we believe and why we do things we that we do and so forth, uh, encourage you to come and participate with us in our Explorers class. There's information about that in the bulletin. Um, this morning, I'm going to wrap up in the few minutes I have left uh, to <laughs> uh, our series on the cross. Uh, I'll try to do this as quickly as I can because I've got a potluck uh, small group meeting at my house after this and a membership interview to do. So busy day today. But um, want to, by way of doing that, just ask, just tell you, first of all, a uh, relationship principle. One of the things that's true about every kind of relationship that you have, whether it's a good relationship, a bad relationship, 
a non-relationship, whatever kind of relationship that you have, you can only get to know a person insofar as he or she is willing to reveal themselves to you, right? And we've all known people, in fact, I probably am one, who five minutes after you meet them have told you their entire life story and history and more than you really would like to know about them, right? And you've also known other people, in fact, I've been in Bible study with a lot of men that are kind of this way, that where you are spending a lot of time with them and six months goes by and you finally, you know, hear them say, so I have some kids. <laughs> really? That's deep. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, and you finally find out, oh, so what do you do for a living, right? And you, you, it, it's getting to know them is a much slower, much more drawn out process, Right? And we all know people who are kind of fit into one camp or the other, either easy to get to know or hard to get to know, but regardless, only insofar as the person is willing to disclose some things about themselves, are you able really to get to know them? Well, let me ask you a question. How about if you're in a relationship with someone you can neither see, nor touch, nor hear, and who is an entirely different kind of being from you. Talking obviously about God. God is an entirely different kind of being from a human, isn't he? He's a, he's, he is an entirely other kind of being who inhabits an entirely other kind of existence than what we have, and we can't see him, we don't normally hear his voice. We can't touch him. So how are we to get to know this being? Well, in the same way, through God's self-disclosure or his revelation. And God's revelation takes a variety of forms. Uh, you know, you want to talk about the creation. You know, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers... What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, right? That's what the psalmist said, right? God, you are so far above us, and I can see all the vast power that you have, that you're able to even make stars. And I'm a little bitty creature made out of about 20 bucks worth of chemicals. How am I able to get to know God? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the revelation of God. That he is ultimately how God chooses to make himself known to us. And so I want to look at Colossians chapter 1, at Jesus and how he is the revelation of God. Because the purpose for which we are made, if you want to know what's my purpose in life, this is what it is. I'll give it to you. Why am I here? This is why you're here. It is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. Some of you more Presbyterian among, among us might recognize that's the Westminster Confession, which is not bad in a lot of respects. But it's also, at that point, very, very biblical that God is, is revealing Himself so that we might know Him, might enjoy Him, might worship Him, might participate in relationship with Him 
And he comes to us in Jesus Christ so that God might disclose himself to us and we might be in intimate relationship with him. Make sense? So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. This is one of the greatest passages on Christology or the doctrine of, of Christ, who Jesus really is in the entire Bible. This is a great passage. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this in this passage, it is impossible to read this and not notice how gloriously Jesus is described. In fact, if you had no other New Testament book in front of you ever, except for this one, you could not learn about what Christians believe except that you would conclude that Jesus, whoever he is, is a pretty big deal. Amen? That read this description about what kind of person Jesus is. And all of a sudden, you, you start reading things about preeminence and creator and firstborn and fullness of God and all these things, right? And, and I want to underline that specifically for this reason. Here in the last few years, there's been a lot of stuff that's come out in the news media and, of course, one of the most popular books in the last 10 years was one called The Da Vinci Code. you remember that one? And in it, the author, Dan Brown, essentially makes the argument, this is the heart of the book, this is what the code is, is that uh, Jesus was not divine, that he was married to Mary Magdalene, and the church made up that stuff about deity and divinity uh, with the emperor Constantine at the Council of Nicaea, that he conspired as emperor with the Nicene fathers to put together this picture of Jesus as a divine figure, but no one in Jesus' own day ever saw him that way. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Not historically, not theologically, not in any other realm of truth you want to talk about it. Does Dan Brown have anything accurate to say on the identity of who Jesus is? But I want to be really clear on this because a lot of people have bought that idea, hook, line, and sinker, that somehow this is just sort of a late addition to Christianity, that, that Jesus never revealed himself as God, never referred to himself as God, was never worshipped as God by his earliest followers, was never written about as God in the New Testament, that the church just made this all up. No. Jesus is and has always been not only, not only, he has not only been worshipped as God, he has actually revealed himself to be God in his power and in his ministry and in his work. And 
And I want to look at seven perfections or seven attributes or seven characteristics. If you want to talk in terms of theology, uh, these are some terms you might use about Jesus that show us that when Jesus reveals himself to us, he reveals himself as fully and completely God. And the first one is in the very first sentence there, verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, that is a far more significant uh, description than you might realize. The word image in the original Greek that's there is the word icon. You ever been to a like a Eastern Orthodox church or a Roman Catholic one and you, you see they have icons everywhere? Little statues or images that are made to represent particular people in history, usually saints or something else, right? And... And if you're going to use a word in Greek to refer to someone as a represent something as a representation, a visible representation of a divine figure, you use this word icon. Jesus is the visible image of God. If you, if you remember your, your Old Testament, what's the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself a what? Graven image. You shall not make for yourself, in other words, a visible representation of the deity. Why? Because that always leads to idolatry in various forms. Also because Jesus, the Son of God, is the visible image. Of the living God. You want to know what God looks like? It's, he looks a lot like Jesus. <laughs> In fact, just exactly like Jesus. That's what Jesus tells Philip, remember? Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says back, Philip, uh, have I known you so long that you do not recognize me? When you look at Jesus, you see God. He is the visible representation of God. No, rep- no, no, no carved out of a stone or wood or, or marble or something else. No, no idol, no image is needed. Why? Because Jesus is the visible image of God. He is God. He is one with the Father. It's one of the most amazing, boldest claims that Jesus ever made was that he and the Father are one thing, one being. And yet it's true. Second, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this causes people no end of confusion, but I don't want you to be confused. And the reason I don't want you to be confused is that not only do a lot of Christian people get this messed up, but the cults have a field day on this. And the JWs, when they come to your door, they will point you to this passage and they will say to you, well, see, this passage teaches that Jesus is the first created being of God and that he's not actually God, as the scripture says. He's actually a created being. He's the highest of all created beings. He's actually Michael, the archangel, who has become a human being. That's what they believe. Now, they might not tell you that right off the bat. As soon as they come to your door, 
usually what they say is, well, Christianity is good, but perhaps there is more, and wouldn't you like to study and learn from the New World Translation of the Scriptures and all of this kind of stuff, right? If you have one of those, by the way, throw it out. What does firstborn mean? Firstborn has to do with, the, you need to pay close attention here. False teachers will, will eat you on this. Firstborn does not mean first created. It has to do with inheritance rights. It has to do with inheritance. And in fact, it has to, it, the idea is, is that Jesus is the chief heir of everything that exists. In fact, if you go to a parallel passage, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, is a, is a very, very similar passage to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following. And it's going to use terms that are almost identical to this, only what's going to say, it's going to say there is, instead of firstborn, he is the heir of all creation. And you may not understand what that means, but here's the idea. In the ancient world, particularly in Jewish culture, the firstborn son was traditionally the one who received the inheritance from the father, particularly if you were the firstborn son of a king. And you got two shares of however much the father had, and then the other sons got a single share each. So if you had five sons, two-fifths of the inheritance went to the firstborn, and the rest of it was divided among the, among the remaining sons. Jesus is the chief heir. And, and by the way, this concept of inheritance rights changes depending on who you are because the inheritance rights didn't necessarily go to the firstborn son. Let me give you a few examples from Scripture. Uh, Jacob was the secondborn of a set of twins, Jacob and Esau, right? You remember that story where he goes in dressed in some some, he got some fur on his arms and on the back of his neck so that he can go in and he can get the rights of firstborn instead of his brother Esau. And then later, Jacob himself adopts the sons of his son, Joseph, who is not the firstborn. He adopts both of his grandsons as sons. And he adopts Manasseh and Ephraim, giving them two shares in the inheritance. So that when the nation of Israel went into the land, there was an allotment for Manasseh and an allotment for Ephraim. But guess what? Manasseh was the older son. But you know who got the rights of firstborn? Of those two boys? Ephraim. Ephraim is referred to as the, as the firstborn. In fact, all through the prophets, Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. He was the biggest tribe. He was the most important tribe. He was the leader of those northern ten tribes. Even though he was the younger son of one of the younger sons of Jacob. And so when it talks about he is the firstborn, it doesn't mean necessarily literally firstborn. It has to do with who gets the right to rule after in the father's place? Who is the one who receives everything that the father owns? 
Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. If you're still confused on that, I really want you to be clear on this, but if you're still confused, come see me, and we'll talk more about this. Um, Get the same idea down in verse 17. He is before all things. He is eternal. He is begotten. He is not made. He is is preexistent, not created. Uh, Just as Jesus taught in the Gospel of John, okay? Uh, Third, he is the creator in three different ways. Everything was made by him, thus he is its instrumental cause. The reason everything exists is because Jesus made it. He is the eternal being who existed before creation and brought it into existence. Just as Hebrews also says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Jesus is the word of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Uh, He's also the final cause. passage says here, that creation was made for him in order to bring him glory, and it will be renewed and one day recreated to bring that final purpose to fruition. Creation exists, and we exist for God, for Jesus specifically, to bring him glory and honor and praise. And Jesus is also the conserving cause of creation. It says here that in him all things hold together. Ever wonder why None of these predictions about a big asteroid is going to hit the earth and kill us all. Why those, none of those ever come true? It's because Jesus holds the universe together. And he holds it in his hands such that none of the planets ever go out of orbit. No asteroid comes and wipes us out. We're not all killed by a comet the day after tomorrow. You know, Jesus holds the universe together. He's what causes it to continue existing. He's the maker of the moon and the stars and the planets and you and I and everything from aardvarks to zebras. And on top of that, all things visible and invisible, both in heaven and on the earth. So not just everything we can see, but also all the things we can't see because we know that there's a whole angelic realm that is out there that Paul describes as thrones and rulers and authorities. And he made all of those beings too. And he rules over all of them. Fourth, he is the head of the body of the church. Jesus died to purchase people for himself. And in doing that, he became the head of the church which is his body active in the world to bring redemption to the lost. And I always get really, I just have to say this, as a pastor, I always get really confused when someone, ever someone says to me, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Really? How can that be? How can you really know Jesus and love him, but hate that, which for, that for which he died? and which is his body active in the world. You can't. In fact, John said you can't. First John, it says, anyone who says, I love God, but hates his brother is a liar, and the truth is not in him. For you cannot love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brother whom you have seen. Amen? Jesus Christ died for the church. And the purpose of the gospel is to bring people to new life such that they enter into not some vague relationship with God, but into a relationship with God through the church. 
because Jesus is head of the body, which is the church. And you are part of the body of Christ for which Jesus died. The visible expression of the glorious kingdom of God is present here, wherever God's people are gathered. And Jesus is head of the church. Uh, Fifth, he is the beginning and firstborn from the dead. When Jesus was raised from the dead, what he is proclaiming is the death of death. The death of of, of Jesus is the death of death. It's the beginning of a whole new order, and everyone who believes in him will likewise receive the eternal life that his death and resurrection buys. And his resurrection is the beginning, and he is the chief heir. See that word firstborn? He's the chief heir of all those who are going to live again. You may not realize this, but part of Jesus' inheritance is you and me. Part of what he receives as the victor over sin and death and hell is you and I in relationship with God through him. And so he is not just the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn of those who are going to come alive again from the dead. He's the chief heir. He's the first one to do it and the first one to receive us who will also do it. Because we are going to conquer death too one day. Amen? As I said a couple of weeks ago, I am not going to die. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, neither are you. Not in the real sense. Not in the way an unbeliever does. When you die as a believer in Jesus Christ, what happens is this. Your heart stops beating, your brain waves quit firing, and then one nanosecond later, you wake up in glory in the presence of God. You are not dead. You are fully alive for the first time. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Sixth, all the fullness of God dwells in him. This is probably one of the most important Christological statements in the entire Bible. All the fullness of God dwells in him. This means there is nothing that is true of God, nothing that is true of God, which is not also true of Jesus. Jesus possesses all of the divine attributes. There's a there's an old hymn out there with some bad theology. It goes like this. It says that he emptied himself of all but love. That is a heretical statement. I know that we've sung it here, but it's heretical. It's wrong. Jesus fully possesses from eternity past and into eternity future all the divine attributes of God. All the fullness of God is present in Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. He is fully human, but he is also fully and completely God. And finally, he is the reconciler of all things, all people. And even the creation itself is going to be restored and renewed and made into a new creation through the blood of Jesus. What gives what gives God the right to take sinners into heaven and to renew the earth that they have destroyed through their sin? What gives God the right to do that? Why doesn't God, as a holy God, have to just destroy us and it and all of it together? What gives God the right to do that is that 
sin has been paid in the blood of Christ and that the peace treaty has been established between God and us. We don't come to peace with God. He makes peace with us. He goes out to us while we are still sinners, still rebels, and pours the blood of Jesus on us and brings us into relationship with him. And God is not only going to reconcile us to himself, but reconcile all of creation to himself, such that all of creation will be put back to the way it was supposed to have been. The curse will be lifted and reversed. And as as Isaiah says, they will no more hurt or kill or destroy in all my holy mountain. And the wolf will play with the goat and the lion will lay down with the lamb and the little child will play by the hole of the asp, which, by the way, is poisonous snake. Bad idea unless you're in a renewed creation. Jesus is the reconciler of all things. And that leads us to Jesus' ministry, verse 20 to 23. I want to just read these to you. Or 21 to 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Look at how Paul describes us apart from Jesus' actions for us. He says we were hostile, we were alienated, we were doing evil. You know, most people, when they think of someone who is you know, just a regular person, not a Christian, they think of them as generally pretty decent, um, fairly innocent, uh, good folks, right? That's how most of us think of a non-Christian. Paul says, no, we are at war with and deliberately rebelling against and in sin against God. But God through Jesus Christ's sacrificial death, has transformed us and made peace with us so that we look at how we're now described. Look at the text. Present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Not hostile, alienated, and doing evil, but holy, blameless, and above reproach. Jesus has, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, transformed us out of being God's enemies into being God's friends, members of his own family. And we remain that as long as we remain in the faith. And that's that little passage there is a warning, again, very much like Hebrews, about trading in the gospel for some sort of ersatz version thereof. And there are some out there on offer. I won't go into all the names of all the people who preach one but i'll tell you that they're out there who will people who will sell you something as the gospel that is not the gospel of jesus christ crucified and raised for sin for you in your place they'll tell you that jesus is here to make you rich or happy or healthy or something else jesus is here to fix your marriage no jesus is here to solve your fundamental issue, which is your rebellion against God. 
It also warns you against punting the gospel altogether. There are lots of people who grew up in church, after all, or who have been in church for a long time who say, yeah, sayonara to all that. Are those people believers? Maybe. But a passage like this doesn't give you a whole lot of assurance that they definitely are. Paul says, hold fast to the truth that you've learned. Because it's magnificent truth. And what's the point of all this? I'll just boil it down. Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of God. The glory of God came in the flesh and died for what we did. And so the God of glory is revealed also as the God of grace. The God who exists in unapproachable light. The God who is so far above us that we could not approach him came down to us. The creator God is the God who cares for creatures that he formed from the dust of the ground. Think about that. You and I are made out of dirt. And the creator God who made us is also the God who cares about us. The chief heir of creation has made us with his own blood to be joint heirs with him of the kingdom of heaven. The sovereign God is the saving God. The holy God is the one who is holy loving. The God whose just wrath should be poured out against us is also the God who chose in love to pour out his wrath instead on his son. That we might be reconciled to him. Jesus is God's ultimate revelation, his ultimate self-disclosure. And in Jesus, God bridges the gap between us. And he deals not only with the sin that limits our understanding of God, but he comes down out of heaven to literally show us what he is like so that the God that we can't touch and can't hear and can't see becomes, as John says, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have heard with our ears, what we have touched with our hands. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. And the only real response only thing i can think of to do in response to this kind of revelation of god is to worship him and so i want you to stand with me and we're going to pray and then rick is going to lead us in a song and we're going to sing about the glory of the immortal invisible amazing god who is the saving god who reconciles us to himself so let's pray Father, you are, as the hymn writer wrote, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inexpressible, hid from our eyes. And yet you are the God who became the God man, Jesus Christ, whom we could touch and hear and speak to and eat with and enter into by your grace in his death on the cross and through his resurrection enter into not just forgiveness of sin, but relationship with you where we are adopted into your very family and made joint heirs with the Son of God of all that is yours. And Father, the glory of that is too wonderful for us to imagine, too great for us to comprehend, but we trust you nevertheless that we will one day experience it when our eyes shut for the final time in this life and open in the glory of your presence. And Father, we worship you, we praise you, and we give you honor and glory. 
because you have made yourself known to us through Jesus and by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.